What's up, my friends? Good to see everybody. My name is Jim Botts. I'm one of the pastors here at Hill Country Bible Church, and we're glad you're with us today. I want to welcome you in if you're joining online or you're at one of our physical locations. We're glad you're on the journey with us. We've been in a series called He Gets Us. We've been looking at the human side of Jesus, just like us. Jesus experienced grief and loss. Jesus experienced wounds at the hands of religious people. Jesus experienced good times with good friends. And as we learned last week, Jesus experienced family conflict. Like when it comes to real life in the real world, Jesus gets us. He does. And so today, one of the things we're going to look at is we're going to look at how Jesus experienced significant struggle. Jesus experienced significant struggle. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, by show of hands, let me see your hand. You help me out with a little survey here. How many of you would say that you you know what struggle's about. You've experienced it. Many of you? All of you? That's every one of us. Like, we all know what struggle's like. And so this week, I found a meme on social media on Pinterest. There was a meme on a page that they created called The Struggle is Real. So maybe you can relate with some of these struggles that others have had. Here's one right here. How about a diet struggle? Somebody posted this under The Struggle is Real. Is your diet going well? Me? Yes. Yesterday, I ate a whole pizza. How many of you can relate? The diet struggle, some of you, right? The struggle is real, friends. And somebody else posted a second one. Uh, maybe you can relate with this struggle. Finance struggles. Organizing your finances is key. Me? Kind of organize what I've got. The struggle is real. Another meme that somebody put up. Uh, maybe you've had technological struggles and you can relate with struggles with technology. How about this one right here? How to tie the strongest knot ever. Step one, put your headphones in your pocket. Step two, wait one minute. Some of you are like, well, you know, you can use Bluetooth headphones and not have, really? Because Bluetooth headphones, mine never talk to each other and they never talk to my phone. Maybe you can relate. The struggle's real with technology. Then, of course, there's the struggle of just, well, regular life. Somebody posted this one. Life is like a game of chess. I don't know how to play chess. The struggle is real. Now, the truth is, friends, life is struggle. Struggle is part of life. It's a big part of it. But very often, for many of us, life can actually feel like just a, just a series, one after another, of difficult struggles, frustrating struggles, annoying struggles, painful struggles. Well, in the wise words of that epic saga, that cinematic masterpiece, The Princess Bride, in the movie The Princess Bride, Wesley gives some really good advice to Princess Buttercup. Here's what he says to her. He says, life is pain, your highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. You can relate with that. Life is pain. Life is difficult. So let me ask you, do, do you, do you really believe that? That struggles are really, they're a part of life? That that's just the stuff of life? Because I think all too often we can treat life's struggles like an intruder, got no place here. This needs to get out. But biblically speaking, life struggles shouldn't be treated like an intruder that has no place. It should be treated more like a friend, a friend that God uses to get our attention, to speak his truth to our lives about who he is and what life's really about and where we really are. And honestly, to help us grow into the people that he intended for us to become. 
Now, here's my confession. As I look back over my three-plus decades of walking with Jesus, I, I discovered that I don't always turn to God when I see the light. I typically get closer to God when I feel the heat. That means struggle, difficulty, and hardship. So let me ask you today, here's a question. What are you struggling with most these days? Is it a person, a relationship? Maybe it's a habit or an attitude or a mindset. Could be your vocation. What are you struggling with most these days? And for some of you, maybe you would say, struggle is not where I find myself. I am in a a place more like intense suffering. And if that's where you find yourself today, let me just say, please don't allow anything said today to minimize in any way the, the intense suffering that you may be going through. But I do want to say this, because there is some good news, and here it is. It could be that your greatest struggle right now, it could be your best opportunity to get real with God. It could be your best opportunity to get close to God and to get on track with his best for your life. And the key to it all is learning how to struggle with Jesus. And that's what we're going to see playing out in Isaiah 53 today. So before we jump into our text, here's the big idea that we're going to see just playing out in Isaiah 53. That Jesus related with our struggles so that we can relate with him. He related with all the things we struggle with so that we might be able to relate with him. Now help me out nice and loud, true or false. I'd love to hear your voice. True or false, some people are easier to relate to than others. True or false? It's true. And when you look at the pages of Scripture, over and over and over, you see Jesus as someone that anyone can easily relate to. But if you look at the portraits of Jesus through history, in paintings and images, you don't always get that same message. By show of hands, how many of you have ever seen a painting of Jesus where he has a halo around his head? Any of you? Have you ever seen that? How many people have a halo around their head? Nobody I've ever met. How many of you, by show of hands, ever seen like an image of Jesus where he has like a burning heart inside of his chest? Have you ever seen that picture before? As a new Christ follower years ago, I was walking through a grocery store, and in the candle section, I saw one of those candles that had a picture of Jesus with a burning heart in his chest. And I looked at it, and I was like, what's that all about? Shouldn't that be by the antacids? Why is that over here? What is that? How many of you, by show of hands, have ever seen a picture of Jesus? Well, like, like a painting with an aura around his whole body. Any of you? All of these kinds of images leave you with the impression that maybe, just maybe, Jesus wasn't like us. Maybe he was otherworldly in some way. So the question becomes, why paint Jesus this way? Well, I think here's what I think is going on. According to Scripture, Jesus is both fully God and fully man in one person without any mixture or confusion. So as being fully God, Jesus was unlike anyone else. Colossians 1.19 says, In him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. But Jesus is also fully man. He's just like everyone else in that sense. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we are yet without sin. So here's what I think is going on. I think it's in an effort to highlight the divinity of Jesus that you see some of these portraits and paintings of Jesus that leave you with the impression maybe he's not human at all. I mean, how many humans have a halo, hearts on fire, and they are glowing somehow? Well, the result is, I think, for many of us, you can be a little bit unsure. How do you relate with this person who glows and has a burning heart? Well, Dr. Tony Evans, I think, gives us some really good, helpful Uh, insight at this point. Dr. Tony Evans wrote these words about Jesus. He said, he could be thirsty because he was fully human. 
He could walk on water because he was fully God. Being fully human, Jesus experienced all of the struggles known to common life as a human being. But being fully God, Jesus also has access to the supernatural resources of God to meet us and help us in our struggles. And that's what we're going to see today in Isaiah chapter 53. A little background before we get into the chapter. Isaiah was written eight centuries before Christ was born in the manger. One of the major features of Isaiah is this servant title. It recurs over and over, the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord was a righteous individual who was going to come and accomplish God's will on behalf of God's people who were constantly failing at doing God's will. So the back part of Isaiah, between chapters 40 and 66, we see four different servant songs that describe who the servant, also known as the Messiah, would be. I can give those to you if you want to look them up later. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 50 and 52. We're 52 and 53, rather. We're going to be in Isaiah 53 today. Now, Isaiah chapter 53 is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. Isaiah 53 is quoted 85 different times in the New Testament. This is a significant passage. And at the Last Supper, Jesus Christ quotes Isaiah 53, 12, and he applies it to himself. Jesus identified himself as the servant of Isaiah 53. In fact, the New Testament confirms that. Acts chapter 8, verse 35, Philip tells the Ethiopian eunuch that the person that this passage is describing is none other than Jesus Christ. So from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, all through Isaiah 53, we see this suffering servant. We're not going to look at the Isaiah 52 part of it. We're just going to look at all of Isaiah 53, and we're going to see Jesus, the one who enters the human story and experiences the exact same struggles and temptations that we all do. So from Isaiah 53, we're going to notice a few things today. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. The first thing that we're going to notice is that Jesus knows. He knows our struggles. We're going to see that in the first three verses. He intimately knows the human struggle. One time a farmer put up a sign out in front of his house. Puppies for sale. A young boy came along and said to him, Mr., I want to buy one of those puppies. So the farmer whistled, and out of a doghouse came a mother dog who came running across the yard with four bouncing little fur balls behind her. Moments later, a fifth fur ball emerged, much smaller than the other ones, stumbling as it went along. It was the runt of the litter. Soon as the boy saw that dog, he said, that's the one right there. I want that dog. The farmer got down on one knee and said, son, you don't want that dog. That dog is never going to be able to run or play with you like those other dogs can. So then the boy bent over and he rolled back his pant leg, revealing two steel braces that came down and went into a shoe. And the boy said to the man, he said, sir, you see, I don't run too well myself. And he's going to need someone who understands. Friends, everyone needs someone who understands. That person is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that, would, that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not Now this passage here, just those first few verses, reads like a catalog of struggles, of painful things, of really hard things. We have to remember, all of this is describing the experience that Jesus Christ not only experienced, he chose to come and experience. So on my count, on those first three verses, I found five ways that Jesus experienced our struggles. These aren't in your notes, but you can write them down. Five ways. The first one, Jesus knows the struggle of being unattractive. Unattractive. Do you notice that right there in verse 2? It said he had no beauty, nothing in his appearance that would make people desire him, that he was attracted. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him is what our text says. Now I recognize for some of you it's like, whoa, have you seen the chosen? That's like an underwear model guy. And then the passion, Jim Caviezel, it's, it's like, Jim Caviezel is like, what's going on here? What's going on? Those just aren't, that's honestly, friends, that's why I really don't watch those shows. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't want someone else's version of Jesus to tell me who Jesus is. I like this one here. Jesus had no beauty. He didn't. There was nothing about him where people were like, oh, take out there. Nothing. Our world highly values physically attractive people. This week I saw a study where one economist said that physically attractive people earn 15% more than people who are not considered physically attractive. Turn to your neighbor and say, that explains a lot. (laughs) Turn to your other neighbor and say, about me. That just says a lot about me. Now listen, if you've ever felt physically unattractive, if you've ever felt like you're just not one of the beautiful people, guess what? Jesus gets you. He succeeded without those things. And he understands that struggle. So Jesus knows the struggle of not not being attractive. Secondly, Jesus knows the struggle of rejection. Do you see that in verse 3? It says that he was rejected by, by men, by people. Now, here's the sad thing. He was rejected by his very own people that have knew him his entire life. His very own people that he knew were the ones who called out from the crowd, crucify him. He was rejected by the religious leaders because they saw him as a threat to their authority. And he was, as we learned last week, even his own brothers did not believe in him. John chapter 7, verse 5. So if you've ever felt that icy hot sting of rejection where someone's like, not you, Jesus gets it. He gets you. He knows that experience. He, he, he knows the struggle of not being attractive. He knows the struggle of rejection. Thirdly, he knows the struggle of sorrow. You notice in verse 3, his title, he's called a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Notice the plural, sorrows. One biblical scholar defined this word sorrow, quote, something that causes great unhappiness. Friends, Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions. He experienced the full range of human heartbreak. And he experienced the full range of of human burdens. So if you've ever felt like battered, 
by repeated waves of mental anguish, Jesus gets you. If you've ever felt battered by repeated waves of emotional or spiritual, even relational anguish, Jesus gets you. He knows the struggle of sorrow, rejection, not being attractive. Fourthly, Jesus knows the struggle of being hated. Being hated. Right there in verse 3, it says two times, it says, he was despised. Remember, we're talking about Jesus Christ. This is the most loving human being the world has ever known. The most compassionate person the world has ever known. He was hated. Why would anyone hate Jesus? Well, the religious leaders hated him for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and eating and drinking with them. We learned about that a couple of weeks ago. The religious elite also hated him because he did not keep their religious traditions their way. But mostly, friends, the religious leaders hated Jesus because he kept saying that he came from God. In fact, some people hated Jesus because of his identity. He kept saying that he was the only son of God and the only way to God. Jesus Christ was not hated for being kind. Jesus Christ was hated for declaring his identity as the only son of God and his mission of, of being the only way to God, for the exclusivity of who he is and what he came to do. That's why a lot of people hated him. So listen, if you've ever looked around your life and you get stink eye from every corner... Everywhere you look, there's at least one hater somewhere looking at you. Jesus gets it. He felt it. He knows it. He knows the struggle of being hated, sorrow, rejection, not being attracted. And fifthly, Jesus knows the struggle of being disregarded. Disregarded. Verse 3 ends with these sad words. And we esteemed him not. The word esteem in, in the original language of the Old Testament Hebrew, it means to regard or to count now, despite the many miracles of Jesus, the compassionate healing works of Jesus, the insightful wisdom and teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of God, in spite of all of those things, some people just simply had no regard for Jesus. To, to them, he just simply did not count. They esteemed him not. Now listen, if you have ever felt like you don't matter, if you've ever felt like you are of no regard, if you've ever felt like you don't count, Jesus gets you. And all of these experiences show us that Jesus knows our pain. He knows our struggles. He understands. He's felt what we feel, and he's faced what we're facing. In his really insightful book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which I would recommend to you, Tim Keller wrote these words. He said, since even he has not kept himself immune from our pain, we can trust him. Listen, he gets you. You can trust him. So the first thing we see in Isaiah 53 is that Jesus knows our struggles. But the second thing we're going to see is that Jesus carried our struggles. We're going to see that in verses 4 through 9. Now this exact conversation was overheard in a foxhole during World War I. A dying man turned to his comrade and he said these words. He said, listen, Dominic, you've led a bad life. Everywhere you are wanted by the police. But there are no convictions against me. My name is clear. So here, take my wallet 
Take my papers, take my identity, take my good name and go and live. And quickly, give me your papers. Give me your identity. And I will take your name, your offenses, your crimes away with me into death. Good news, friends. This is exactly what Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, chose to do. Jesus chose to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. On the one hand, he lived the perfect life that you could never live. He obeyed God 100% perfectly on our behalf. He is the only one who has a good name, the righteous one, the sinless son of God. And he did that for us. But then also on the other hand, he also provided the perfect sacrifice for sin on the cross to bear all of our sin, the weight of all of our sin. Jesus died so that we might be free from the worst thing that could ever happen. What's that? To be and stay estranged from God forever. Isaiah 53, notice verses four through six. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This passage right here, verses 4 through 6, it's the heart of our passage, but it's also the heart of the good news about Jesus Christ because it displays to us the heart of God towards sinful people like me and like you. And in this text here, we see three things. We see our greatest problem, we see God's solution, and we see the best result. Let's start with the greatest problem. What's our greatest problem? According to the text, in a word, it's the word sin. In fact, the text uses two different Hebrew words to describe it. The first word in verse 5 is the word transgressions. Transgression. The word transgression means to cross a line that God has drawn. Transgress. It's like God's like, hey, here's my ways. Here's how I design for things to go. We're like, awesome, okay. Transgress. That's the first word. The second word is the word iniquities. In fact, you see it two times. You don't hear that word anymore, do you? Iniquities, not very much. Two times it shows up, verse 5 and verse 6. The word iniquities refers to what's crooked. Certainly the crooked things we do, but also the crooked things that come from inside. Now you realize that all the crooked stuff out there comes from crooked stuff in here, right? So how does all this play out, this greatest problem that we have? Well, verse 6 tells us. We all like sheep, gone astray. Each one turned to his own way. In other words, it plays out like this. Everybody, do your own thing. Everybody, go your own way. Everyone, have your own standard. Be your own good. Hey, be your own God. All the while, you're actually astrayed and estranged from the God who loves you and created you. So that's the greatest problem. God's solution comes to us in the form of a person. Eight different times we see the personal pronoun he, 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 he. Jesus is the servant who came to take our greatest problem upon himself. 
Notice the words for our occur two times in the text. And both times it's attached to our greatest problem. Scripture says that he was pierced, speaking of being on the cross, for our transgressions. And it continues. He was crushed by the burdens. Why? For our iniquities. In other words, the penalty, as the text says, for our sins fell upon him. God laid upon him the sins of us all. So Jesus, the sinless son of God, became our sin bearer. He bore the penalty that all of our sins deserve. He carried away all of our crimes and all of our offenses away into death so that we might have new life through him. So our problem, sin. God's solution, Jesus' sacrifice. The best result, verse 5, the best result. It says the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Those three words, brought us peace. It's interesting, that word peace in the Hebrew, it's not like tranquility, like, oh, I'm glad that's over. No, that's not what that is. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom. Even today, you'll hear Jews greet each other, shalom. It it literally means wholeness. It means harmony. It's, It's everything as it was meant to be. Picture the Garden of Eden before the fall. That's everything as it was meant to be. Human beings relating with God, relating with each other, relating with the environment. No sin, no evil, no suffering, no death. That's shalom. That's the way it was meant to be. Through the cross, all of life's burdens, all of life's struggles, find their peace. All of our sins are forgiven in Jesus. We are reconciled to a relationship with God. We have a new identity as sons and daughters who belong to God forever. And we are brought into a relationship whereby all the damage of sin is healed by the power of Jesus the servant. Now remember, this servant Jesus paid a very, very heavy price so that we would know this peace. Let's continue. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. The word wicked in Hebrew is plural. Remember, there was one thief on each side of him who were condemned criminals. Wicked. And he was with the rich man in his death. The rich. That word rich is singular in Hebrew. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea, the the rich man, gave Jesus a tomb. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit. In his mouth. So verses 7 through 9, we see the Jesus' submission to the will of the Father on full display. Full, full display. By show of hands, how many of you say, ah, ah, total surrender to God comes super easy for me? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, me neither. And, and truth be told, Jesus too, same thing. Because on the night before he went to the cross in Matthew 26, three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times, Jesus struggled in prayer. And he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass, the cup of suffering. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The bottom line, friends, that Jesus was innocent. Verse 9 tells us that he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
That could be said of him. That could not be said of me. That could not be said of you. In fact, Elizabeth Elliot, the great missionary and author, she wrote these words. I think this relates a little bit more to what could be said of us. A whole lot of what we call struggling is simply delayed obedience. Sometimes a whole lot of it's just us wanting to be God and know God at the same time. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. But here's the truth, not so Jesus. He stayed in that struggle. He did not quit when it hurt. He obeyed the Father even unto death. He did not take any shortcuts. He found no quick fixes. There were no easy outs. He surrendered to the Father to experience all that our sins deserve so that we would experience all that his obedience deserves by belonging to him. I'll say that again. He experienced all that our sins deserve so that we might experience all that his obedience deserves. He did that through surrender, and we receive it through surrender. So in Isaiah 53, we see that Jesus knows our struggles. He carried our struggles. And then the third thing we're going to see is that Jesus transforms our struggles. He transforms them. We'll see that in the last few verses. Now, according to the Oxford Companion to Music, in music theory, there's a term. The term is called sympathetic resonance. What's sympathetic resonance? Picture, picture two pianos, like one over here and one over there. Two pianos. Sympathetic resonance. Uh, it occurs when you strike a note on one piano, let's say middle C. When you strike a note, another piano nearby, that same note will reverberate. Sympathetic resonance. When things are tuned to each other, when you hit the one, the other one will resonate the exact same way. What's the point? Here's the point. When struggle, pain, when sorrow strike you, sympathetic resonance occurs in the heart of Jesus. Because being fully man, he knows exactly what you're feeling. But being fully God, he has access to the supernatural resources of God to transform those very struggles that you're going through. Isaiah 53, look at verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Now here's the interesting thing. Verses 10 through 12, the prophet is explaining the cross to us from God's point of view. We're seeing the Godward perspective of the cross, of the death of Jesus. Now here's a little newsflash. From God's perspective, Jesus' death, Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus' death was no accident. In fact, verse 10 calls it a guilt offering, a free will offering for sin. The sinless Son of God, the sinless Son of God, willingly offered himself as the one to bear the judgment that all of our sins deserve. 
And so there's good news in this passage here. I don't know if you picked it up. Two. There's two pieces of good news. Here's the first one. Death does not have the last word. Did you notice that in verse 10? Verse 10 says, he, the one who died on behalf of sinners, he will see his offspring. How's a dead person going to see his offspring? He will see his offspring. Guess who his offspring are? It's us. It's you. It's me. He will see his offspring. And again, verse 11, after suffering, he will see the light of life. How? The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, the suffering servant, he took all of our sins on himself, carried them into death, and then he rose from the grave to vindicate that he is, in fact, the only son of God, the suffering servant, Messiah, Savior, Lord, Redeemer, and Healer. Here's another piece of good news, though. Not only does death not have the last word, second piece of good news, sin does not have the last word. Now remember, this is God's perspective. Verse 11, God said, my my righteous servant will justify many. Justify. That word justify is is a legal term. It means to declare in right standing. To declare as right before God. That's what's going on here. What's going on is we see that our record of sin was transferred to Jesus on the cross. And for all who trust in him, his record of righteousness is transferred to you. So when God sees you, he doesn't see your record of sins in Christ because those are on the cross and dead and buried. He sees the record of Jesus Christ on your behalf. God treats all who are in Christ as Christ. What does Jesus' obedience deserve? That's how God sees you in Christ. That's how he treats you. This man, Jesus, he's just like us. He experienced the same struggles and the same temptations that we have, yet he has the supernatural power of God to transform those very struggles. In the New Testament letter of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 5 and 16, 15, 16, says this. For we do not have a high priest. That's Jesus, a high priest. A priest represents people to God and God to people. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Wow. What do we do with that? Here's what we do with that. Continuing. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen, whenever, whenever you struggle, whenever you face temptation, whenever you run right up against your weaknesses, sympathetic resonance occurs in the heart of Jesus. And because he gets you, you can trust him. And in those moments, we run to him. Now listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, and maybe as a Christ follower, you're not experiencing struggles per se. Maybe you're in more of an extended time of intense suffering. If that's you today, then God's word says this in Psalm 56, verse 8. It says that God keeps a record of all of our tossings. In fact, even all of our tears are in his bottle. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is coming a day when all those tears will find their satisfaction. When all your tossings, when all the days of struggle that you're undergoing will be redeemed. There's coming a day. They will all be rewarded in Christ. But here's a comforting thought. The comforting thought is that Jesus didn't experience, you know, temptation and struggle so that he could know what it was like. Jesus experienced temptation and struggle so that we would know 
that he knows what it's like. And that's a very comforting thought. In fact, Bible scholar Don Carson summarized it this way. He said, the God on whom we rely knows what suffering is all about. Not merely in the way that God knows everything, but by experience. Jesus has experienced the very things that break your heart. Bottom line is that struggle is a part of life. Life is a struggle. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, overcame death, overcame sin, overcame everything. His resurrection guarantees a day that one day when he returns, every struggle will end. And he will set up the kingdom of God wherein righteousness dwells forever. So when it comes to struggle, Jesus gets it. He understands it. He's with you. And he can transform those very struggles. It all comes down to verse 10. Isaiah 53.10 says, And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Whatever is placed into the hand of Jesus will prosper exactly the way that God wants it to prosper. In New York City's Rockefeller Plaza, there's a statue. And the statue is a statue of Atlas. And he's struggling under the weight of the world. Check him out right there. He's weighted on his back. He's bent one foot off the pedestal. Atlas struggling under the weight of the world. But right across the street, as you can tell, there's a cathedral. That's St. Peter's Cathedral. At St. Peter's Cathedral, there's another statue. On the other side of the street, that other statue is none other than the boy Jesus, who's got the whole world in his hand. So friends, here we see the two ways to live. One, you carry the world. Or two, give Jesus your whole world, past, present, and future. Our passage today began with a question Isaiah 53 1 Who has believed? Who has believed the message? I ask you, have you believed the message? Have you placed your whole world into the hand of Jesus? Or are you still going the other way? Because our passage begins with a question, but also rests on a fact. And here's the fact. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You will prosper in Jesus' hand. Because he gets you, you can trust him with your whole world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize the truth. Life really is hard. But you really are good. We are grateful that you see us. We're not invisible. We're not unseen. You see all of our sorrows. You see all of our struggles. And we thank you for sending Jesus, the servant who chose to experience those struggles, who chose to bear our sins and to bear our sorrows. Jesus, the sinless Son of God who purchased our peace at the cross. And Jesus Christ, today we confess, we, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. Thank you for taking the sins of us all upon yourself. As we continue praying today, 
heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're here today and you recognize that you have never placed your world into the hands of Jesus, what better time than right now, today? Aren't you tired of carrying it on your own? Aren't you tired of doing it all by yourself? Today's the day and now's the time to just simply transfer your trust to Jesus. You could do it just with a simple prayer like this. You could just say, dear God, I do need you. I am a sinner and I do need a savior. And Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God and you died on the cross to pay for my sins and you rose from the grave so that I might have new life in you. And right now I call upon you, Jesus. I say, will you forgive all my sins? Will you come into my life? Will you fill me with your spirit and make me new? Thank you for giving yourself for me. And right now, I, best I know how, I give myself back to you and say, be my leader, be my forgiver, be my savior, be my redeemer from this moment on. It's in Christ's name that I pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. Hey, if that's you today, we want to celebrate and welcome you to the family of God.